if he wants to attain to this office of overseer. And he goes through all these things. And this, this, uh, this term, this overseer term, is this term that's quite hard for us to define. And in Bruce's message a few weeks, several weeks ago, he mentioned how it's just helpful for us in our context to think of that as church leader. That's kind of what we're picking up on when we see this overseer term. And if, if you look at that list in 1 Timothy 3, and then you look at this list of these things that we read through in Titus 1, you see a lot of similarities. It's almost, it's almost identical, in fact. I think there's five things that are exactly identical, and the other things that aren't quite identical, they have a very tight correspondence with each other. And, so, and it makes sense. It, you know, it makes sense. This is written by the same guy, and it makes even more sense when you consider that Paul wrote this letter to Titus at the same time, in the same period as he wrote his letter to 1 Timothy. So he has these qualifications, these standards that overseers have to live up to. And so this is kind of his standard, uniform way of articulating them. So they're very similar. So with, with, with that in mind, even as we walk through this today, I'm going to be focusing in on uh, verses 10 through 16, uh, just because the, the content of verses 6 through 9 is so similar to 1 Timothy 3 that we'd be going over a lot of the same ground if we were to walk through that again. So uh, if you're curious about any of that, if you want to check out how we've addressed some of those issues that are there. It's not just me being scared and not wanting to do it. It's a little bit of that, but it's mostly the fact that we've been through it already. You can go to our website and you can download and listen to Bruce's sermon that he delivered on 1 Timothy 3, where he goes through a lot of this material in greater detail. So, uh, like I said, there are indeed some great similarities between what's going on in this letter to Titus and the letters to Timothy. But if you paid more attention to a different part of this passage, to, to sort of the second half and some of the things that are going on there, There should be a lot of stuff that sounds really new, stuff that sounds pretty different. So just by way of introduction to this book that we're going to be walking through the next couple of weeks, I want to do a couple of things this morning. First, I want to briefly outline just some of the key uh, differences, some of the key differences between this letter to Titus and the letters to Timothy, especially 1 Timothy that we've been walking through. And then I want to point out just uh, three central themes, observations that we can get out of this passage here and how it can speak to us today. So first... Just to outline some of the main uh, things that are unique about this letter to Titus. Because we don't, we don't want to view this as just sort of an abbreviated form of 1 Timothy, where, okay, why are we going through this again? It's kind of saying some of the same things we've already looked at. We don't want to do that. We want to have ears to hear, okay, God has actually put this in the Bible for a reason. It's given to us. So what's going on uniquely with this book of Titus? Well, if you look in uh, verse 5, just in this first chapter here, in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, to put into order what's left, and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So right here we already have what's probably the most basic difference between these uh, letters. Whereas Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, he's in a different place, he's in the city of Ephesus to reform an existing church, to revitalize and bring health again to an existing church, and to confront this false teaching that's coming from leadership within the community, That's going on in Timothy's situation. With Titus, he's on the island of Crete, and he's left with the task of establishing the leaders of this Christian community. And not just in one place, all over the island. Paul says, in every town, all over, all the towns as I directed you. So this is is really a huge difference. You know, you can read this and you can say, okay, that's just a little bit of a different background context, but this is a very big difference. You think of the difference between, you know, straightening out an older, more established, more rooted church in the city of Vancouver for example, and then the difference between that and appointing a team of church planters who are going to lead churches all over Vancouver Island, all over the place. There's a really big difference there, really big difference of things that you'd want to emphasize and point out. So that's, that's the difference in background between the situations of Timothy and Titus. That's the first thing. 
Uh, second thing, when you read these letters, these pastoral epistles, you can see as plain as day that the main issue going on all over the place is this false teaching. Right? It comes up again and again and again, this false teaching that's happening, that's going on in all these situations. But with Timothy, there's more of an emphasis on dealing with a mess that's already there. They're already up to their neck in it. They've already got all of this stuff going on. There are certain people, Paul says, that need to stop teaching. He says that in 1 Timothy. He names them by name in one example, which is pretty terrifying. And he does that. And with Titus's situation, however, there's, there's certainly some mess there, and we see that in our passage. There's already some mess there, but by and large, the emphasis in this letter seems to be more on preventative measures. How Titus can safeguard uh, this church, the, 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 these churches that he's starting up, really. And uh, he, need, he needs to be told by Paul how to safeguard the truth of Jesus Christ and how to keep the church pure. So that's why Paul lays out for Titus at the very beginning of this letter. In 1 Timothy, it's until the third chapter where he starts saying these are the qualifications people need to meet. Here in Titus, it's boom, it's at the very start. He lays out, I want you to appoint elders. These are the kinds of people that I want you to put into church leadership. Right at the beginning. This is where the bar is set. And part of the reason why Paul is so clear about where the bar is set undoubtedly has to do with where Titus is, where he's doing this ministry. So this is the the third little point here by way of introduction. Titus is in Crete. He's in Crete, an island in the Mediterranean, just a little southwest of Turkey. Uh, And you can can probably guess, if you you were listening to this passage, you can probably guess uh, what Paul's general impression of Crete is, what Cretans are like. This epithet that we, you know, if we really wanted to, we can bring it back and just start calling people Cretans when we're mad at them. So he has, the, he has this quote that he says there in verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So these are strong words. Very strong words. And the truth is that a lot of uh, scholarship in the past has, has looked at this and said, okay, well, look at this, Paul's a racist. Like, for real, he's, he's clearly bigoted, he's got this ancient mindset where he's just kind of ethnocentric, and he's looking at these other people, and he's just, he's just a racist guy. But the thing is, if you look at this, like, you, you look closely, and you see he's not saying, boy, I hate those Cretans, they're a bunch of big, fat liars. He's saying one of their teachers, one of their prophets, a Cretan himself, calls them big, fat liars. So he's very direct about this. And most scholars think that this quote comes from Epimenides, uh, this figure who is extremely respected as a teacher by the likes of Plato and Aristotle, they talk about him too. And that's where this quote comes from. This highly respected teacher. So Paul's, Paul's quoting someone with serious authority here when he's saying this. This is something they would have been familiar with when he says this to them. And the truth is, uh, if Paul wanted to, there were, there were other authorities that he could have referenced uh, to bring up what Crete and its reputation was like. Uh, Polybius, the ancient Greek historian, he writes this. He says, so common is sordid love of gain and lust for wealth among them, the Cretans, that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. Greedy people do whatever it takes to make a buck. That's what he's saying. No gain is disgraceful. Cicero, the famous uh, Roman statesman, he says that Cretans are the sort of people that consider piracy and brigandage honorable. So they're making these very, you know, they're kind of these hyperbolic statements. But in the ancient world where it meant everything to be a person of honor, it meant everything to be honorable. You want to you gain honor, you want to avoid shame. It meant everything to them. 
and they're saying that Cretans are the kinds of people that are so perverse that piracy is honorable to them. That's how skewed their perception is. And this is where Titus needs to find some solid people to be church leaders. This is the context. The kind of people outlined in verses 6 through 9. These qualifications they need to meet. So, these are just a few points by, by way of introduction to introduce us to the, to the uniqueness of what's going on in this letter. Uh, so now, with this background in mind, just kind of holding this, this background that we need to understand in mind, I want us to, to refocus our attention on what's actually going on in these, these verses that I was talking about, verses 10 through 16. So this is the place we'll be focusing in on and ask what God might have to say to us through this text. How does this ancient letter speak to us today? Uh, the very basic summary of what's happening in these verses, 10 through 16, is this. Paul is reminding Timothy that he needs to find these overseers of solid character because, you notice verse 10, it starts with this for, which is very important whenever you see that, for, because there are many in his context who are insubordinate. It's the first thing he says. This insubordinate word can also mean unruly, rebellious. Interestingly, it's the same word that's used to indicate what the overseer's children must not be like in uh, verse 6. So he says, appoint these elders to oversee the church because there are these unruly people where you are in your context. Paul goes on to say that these people are empty talkers. They're babblers. They're entirely frivolous. No real purpose behind what it is that they're saying. He says they're deceivers. They dupe people. They're tricksters. They're hucksters. So in in other words, these people are charlatans. Is kind of what he's getting at. Snake oil salesmen. That's what's happening here. He even says in verse 11, if you need more proof of this, he says in verse 11, they teach what they ought not to teach for shameful gain. The the expression, I don't know if you've heard it, I I hadn't, I came across this in the book, but filthy lucre, L-U-C-R-E, filthy lucre, that expression comes from William Tyndale's uh, translation of this exact verse. That's where that term came from. He had to invent a word to describe what was going on with these people. Their motives are ugly, ignoble, dishonorable. So just, just like what Polybius and Cicero were saying. So Paul, Paul's making it very clear. Just basically, Paul's making it clear there's bad characters around. Some bad people that are here. And you notice at the end of verse 10, he says, especially those of the circumcision party. Circumcision party. Never thought you'd find those two words together, I bet. I'm having a party this weekend. <laughs> Who wants to come? Okay, stop it, stop it, Mike. Okay, but what, but what, the, what this phrase says in the Greek, it just says those of the circumcision. So this is just a, this is a way of saying, it's this expression to refer to those from Judaism. They're these people who value circumcision, they're Jews. That's just his way of saying it. And the fact that Paul points out that it's especially, other translations say namely, especially those belonging to the circumcision, means that it's probably from the Jewish segment of these churches where a lot of this mess is coming from. Paul says in verse 11 that these charlatans are upsetting entire households. And then in verses 13 through 14, he says something very interesting that we should catch. He says these people need to be rebuked sharply so that they'll be sound in the faith. And this is important because he's saying correct them, not just to be harsh and authoritarian, not just to be correct, but correct them so that they'll be healthy in the faith. And then he says, he says this, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. 
And so this, this is interesting, and we should notice something here. And this is why. We mentioned how Crete is this rough-and-tumble place, this ugly place with all these ignoble people, pirates and thieves and whatnot. So you might think that Paul would say, okay, you're in this context, watch out for those who are leading you into debauchery. Watch out for those who are leading you astray, who are leading you to immorality, all sorts of wickedness. You're in Crete, remember. You'd think he might be saying that. But he doesn't. What does he say? He says, they're being led into Jewish myths and the commands of humans. Commands of humans. Now, by, by myths, he's likely referring to a special uh, esoteric way of understanding the Old Testament. So what some people think. And, and just this apparently deeper level of knowledge that you need to have. You need to understand these myths. You need to understand the secrets that are going on underneath all these things. And then these human commands that he talks about have to do with uh, asceticism, these, these severe rules that you impose upon yourself for the sake of holiness and being extra pure, being extra holy. So this is, this is very interesting that he says that. That's what they're being led into in this place. So this leads me to the first of the three themes that I want to point out from this text. So number one, when Christian people are confronted with a culture that embraces very non-Christian values, and attitudes, and outlooks. The primary temptation and danger is not to become less religious, but more religious. So, hold on. You might, you might think, okay, what, you might think, are you saying that when the broader culture goes down a path of wickedness, as it so often does, there's no danger there for the church? There's no way that that can infect, affect the church? Well, sure, it can. Of course it can. We've seen this before. This happens. Of course it does. If, if every single thing that the wider culture deems as worthy is just baptized and brought into the church, no questions asked, of course that's dangerous. That can happen, absolutely. But surely we know what else happens very often. Often we see the broader culture going down a path that we see as dangerous and wicked, and we suddenly realize we need to ensure that we're protected. We need to ensure that we're safe. We need some rules. We need some more boundaries. We need, we need some more distinct practices. We need some more explicit ways of determining just who's in and just who's out. And the inevitable outcome is that it's no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ that defines and shapes us, but all of a sudden it's these other things that we've brought in to the mix. And what's the result of this? Well, the result of this is that instead of being the light of the world, a city on a hill, proclaiming to the wider culture, engaging with the culture around us, and challenging them with the news that Jesus is Lord and he's risen from the dead. Instead of doing that, we retreat behind our own walls where we can feel safe. Where we can be sure that we're not going to get contaminated. And that's exactly what these charlatans in this passage are offering to people. This is what they're offering to people, and that's why it got traction where it did in this context. So, so when Paul quotes the saying of Epimenides, this, this rude thing about these Cretans, when he, when he quotes this saying, he's making a really brilliant rhetorical move here. Because what, what he's saying is, okay, these teachers are trying to make you think that you're protecting yourself from these Cretans and this ugly culture, but in actuality, they're no different from them. That's what he's saying there. Yes, Cretans have a nasty, brutish reputation, but these guys are no better when they teach for shameful gain 
the things that they ought not to teach, when they teach that you need special insider knowledge, when they teach that you need to go above and beyond the gospel itself, special commands, when they teach that you need the gospel plus something else to actually be right with God, they're just as bad as, as the Cretans. They're living up to the reputation of the place where they live. And as we continue through the, through the book of Titus, we see that Paul is so, so intent on just wanting to sweep the board absolutely clean of any idea that there's any tradition, any practice, any idea, any sort of authority, any command that can bring someone one step closer to the fullness of life of God. There's nothing at all that can bring someone any closer to purity, to wholeness, to holiness, because God in his great mercy has done this for us on our behalf in Christ Jesus. Makes this point very strongly in a couple places in the book. Listen to what Paul says about this in uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 4. Paul says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So look, hear that. Look at these amazing words. Look what he's saying here. He's saying, not because of works done by us, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is his little summary of what the gospel is and does. Utterly cleansed. Completely regenerated. Spiritually renewed altogether. This, this is what faith, trust in Christ Jesus does. So he's saying, don't be a gospel plus extra commands sort of person. Don't be doing that. What Jesus has done is entirely enough. And to act as though it isn't is to actually disparage the gospel. That's why he gets up in arms about this. And the biting irony is that, as as Paul says in verse 15, he says, these people who are trying to strive for this purity, these people who are going after this, they're the ones in the end who are actually defiled. If you look at verse 15, that's what he's saying. He's saying these are the ones who are actually detestable. This harsh word there. it's, it's, It's this word that has Old Testament background of what is displeasing to God, what's unholy and displeasing in his sight. So you can hear all of this. You can hear all of this and think, okay, so if works and and forms of obedience and all of this don't bring wholeness and purity in the sight of God, they don't bring wholeness and purity in the sight of God, do good works play any sort of role at all? And if so, what role do they play? And the answer is that they play a very, very important role, especially in this book. And they need to because of this, this second point that I want to move on to. They need to because of this. The Christian church is the face of Jesus Christ to the watching world. We, you, I, all of us, are the face of Jesus Christ to the watching world. And the way we are to exist as the face of God, of Jesus, to the watching world is as people who are known for good works. As mundane as that sounds. So how how can this possibly relate to what we were just saying here? Well, it relates because your good works, my good works, our good works, while absolutely not being the basis of our righteousness before God, absolutely not being the basis of of his love for us, not being the grounds of that, 
They are, in fact, what will evidence to the watching world that the gospel actually means something to you. That it's actually true in your life. Uh, Gordon Fee, he sums up, he's a New Testament scholar who comments on this book, and he sums up the dominant theme of this whole book of Titus by saying that the dominant theme is good works, exemplary Christian behavior for the sake of outsiders. For the sake of outsiders. Not for the sake of making God love you. Not for the sake of making you extra pure, extra religious. But for the sake of the watching world. Scary as it may sound, Jesus has entrusted his reputation to the church. And the reason why good works do factor in in such a big way is because, to put it bluntly, no one's going to want to buy what we're selling if we're not even buying it ourselves. It's, it's a really obvious point when you think about it. It sounds kind of crude, but it's a very obvious point. Uh, if you look at verse 16, this first chapter here. This, this is the verse that one commentator says is the linchpin of the whole book. You need to get what's going on in verse 16. Paul's talking about these rebellious people and he says, these people profess to know God, but deny him by their works. The fact that there's no fruit, no evidence of the life of God coming from them shows that they don't actually know the one that they claim to know. Now, I just, this, this is a very central verse this whole book, absolutely. And while this is so important for us to get, we need to be very careful here, I think. We need to be very careful with how we understand this. Because if there's one thing that all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us know for sure, it's that the church is a community of justified sinners, of sinful saints, simultaneously justified and sinful, is the classic phrase. And if we join the church in hopes that it'll be the most pleasant, most heavenly, most positive experience all around, we're going to be sorely disappointed and hurt. And many of us have experienced that. You expect to find a whole bunch of perfect people. These are the Christians. They should be perfect. They should get this stuff. And then you find that they don't, and we don't, and we so often fail. And in the same way, it's important to know that while our good works will indeed make the gospel more coherent and more sensible to the watching world, Our moral successes, if you can put it that way, our moral successes do not make the gospel in itself any more true than our failures make it less true. The gospel itself is true because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did, not because of what I did. It's true. And I feel it's very important to make that clear. I feel it's very important to make that point here because there are some of us here, absolutely there are some of us here, who really, really need to ask ourselves where we're at in terms of zeal for good works. That's a phrase that comes up in this book of Titus. Be zealous for good works. Some of us need to ask what's going on in our lives for that. Why is there no zeal there? Is there any evidence of this happening in my life? If not, why not? We definitely need to be asking ourselves that. But at the same time, some of you here are are absolutely crushed by the burden that you have to be perfect before you could possibly share Jesus with anybody. You think people around you have seen you fail, they've seen that you're not flawless, time and time again, and you have to wait until you're noticeably, you know, better, on a different level than everybody else around you before you could possibly have anything to offer them, let alone something to offer them that's of ultimate significance. And so we're, we're crushed by that burden. No, I need to make sure I'm living it fully before I can even say anything. And we just kind of get in this really dangerous tension. 
And to, to people in that group, to people who are feeling that way, let me just encourage you and remind you that Paul does not make this emphasis on good works in order to make you feel like you're not cutting it. He knows you don't cut it. He already knows that. He doesn't need a reminder from us. The whole point of the gospel is that you're not great, but Jesus is, and he gave himself for you anyway and loved you anyway. We need to get our minds and our hearts around that. And this, this leads us to our third and final point, which will hopefully tie all these things together. Number three, God transforms us through the grace of the gospel so that we can transform the world around us. Another way to, to phrase this is, the way that God shows himself to the world is through changed lives. And the way God changes lives is through the grace of the gospel. That might, that might sound similar to stuff that we've already been saying, but this is very different. Because this has to be an utterly foundational point for us. Because if all we have is this number two point, this number two point of saying that the church is the face of Jesus to the watching world, if all we have is that point, what message are we left with? If that's, if that's all we say. Well, I think we're left with an immense burden. It's up to us. We're on our own. You know, we're the face of God to the watching world. We've got to pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps and we need to get to work because a lot is riding on this. And some of us really do think that way and we feel that way when it comes to evangelism and mission and witnessing. We feel that sense, that sense of burden and responsibility, which in some senses, I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit to obviously convict you if that's what you need to be feeling, but in some senses, it can be one of the most dangerous things. So, even after talking about this emphasis on good works, we talked about how how much they factor in, we still have to ask ourselves the question, what's the source of this? Like, I hope you're feeling the burden of asking that question. What's the, where does this even come from? What's the source of this? You don't need me to tell you good works are good. They say it in the name. They're good works. It's a pretty obvious thing. We all know that. We all know we should do good works. We all know it should, we should do these things because it makes Jesus more credible, because it makes the gospel more attractive. We understand that. But as we all know, it's not that easy. Right? The problem for most of us is not that we, we don't recognize the inherent value of good works, of living holy, good, upright lives. That's not the problem. The problem for most of us is that we don't have it in us to do that, to live that out. And I just, if you don't catch anything else, I want you to catch this, because this is why it's so incredibly important to remind ourselves that faith in Jesus Christ Trust in him. Trust in what he's accomplished in his death and resurrection. Trust in what he's accomplished on Calvary, like we've been talking about. Trust in him is not, is not just some sort of new worldview or paradigm or ideology that simply takes you as you are and kind of reorients you. You know, that kind of takes you as you exist, as you think of things and says, hold on, I want to tweak you and just get you to see things a little bit different. It's a death. Resurrection. We talked about this at, uh, I lead the young adults ministry, and we talked about this when we were talking about the cross and how the New Testament authors, when they looked at the cross, they didn't just see the cross of Jesus, they saw their own cross. They saw the place where they were crucified with Christ. It's a very central idea. It's a death and resurrection. It's a washing, as it says in Titus. It's a renewal. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of eternal life. It's the revelation of the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to the saints. 
This is, this is all biblical New Testament language of how Paul phrases the significance of the gospel and what it is. It's a big thing. A new thing has happened. A completely different thing has happened. And so my point in saying all of this is simply to say that the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, changes things and inevitably will change things. It won't make you perfect overnight. But as Paul says in, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. It's an amazing phrase. The grace of God trains us, teaches us. We are indeed the face of God to the watching world, the city, to the community around us. But by no means do we do this under our own strength. At all. And we, we need to know that Paul's emphasis on good works in this letter has nothing to do with imposing some sort of new law. You know, he's not saying to all these people, hey, don't listen to these human commands, but actually you do have to follow a bunch of commands because you all need to be really perfect people or else we're in trouble. He's not trying to impose this new law. Paul is simply reminding that the body of Christ needs to look like Christ and will look like Christ. And that's the good news. The good news is that inevitably it will if we remain attached to him. It's a really beautiful, encouraging thing. I'm going to call up the worship team now, and they're going to lead us in singing as we respond to, to what God has had to say to us this morning. And as they're coming up, I just want to close by reading this wonderfully encouraging passage. It's not from Titus. We're going to hop over to somewhere else in John 15, where uh, Jesus is reminding us of this beautiful truth that we need to hear coming out, coming out of a text like this. Because it's here in this passage, in John 15, that Jesus reminds us that good works, fruit, healthy fruit, the evidence of God's grace does not come through grit teeth and the sweat of our brow. It comes through simply remaining attached to Jesus. It's beautiful. It makes this organic image. If you remain attached to me, it's going to happen. And that's a burden that we can bear. So starting at verse 3, in chapter 15, Jesus says this, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you're the creator of heaven and earth. You're the one who spoke the universe into being. And you're the one who loves us. And Lord, you, only you know where each person here is at today. And um, We can try to, to speak about these things and talk about these Bible passages in ways that is, is relevant to all sorts of different people and that makes sense to all sorts of different people, but God, only you are the one who knows um, the depths of each one of our hearts. Uh, there's no secrets before you. Before you, everything is laid bare. And I just ask that by your Holy Spirit, you can um, minister to us, that you can teach us what we need to know, that you can reveal yourself to us. And Jesus, just help us to, to understand the, the, the significance and the responsibility and the privilege of what it means that we are your face to the watching world around us. And that it's only us who, who are in the, the spheres of influences that, that you've placed us in 
that we can impact certain people at our workplaces, at our schools, in our families. Um, Help us to understand the privilege and the responsibility that's there, but help us to also not be crushed by that burden and to recognize that at the end of the day, all you ask of us is to be attached to you, is to attach ourselves to you and just let the fruit come naturally, organically, through knowing you, through walking with you. Speak that to my heart, speak that to all of our hearts, and uh, God, we do ask that you can help us to be zealous for good works, that we can be people who are gripped by the gospel, that we're changed by this renewing, this regeneration, this washing that Paul talks about in Titus. Help us to be people that are just impacted by that and changed by that, and as a result, we just want to cling to you. That's all we can ask for. So be with us this week as we seek to pursue these things, and as we seek to pursue you, we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.